Brian Halligan afterwards came up to me, who's the CEO of HubSpot, for those who don't know. And he's like, how is it that you are my agency of the year and I have no idea who you are? And I was like, I don't know who you are either. Like, I'm super sorry. Um, but the lesson for me in that, and I've told this to people because now we have all of these accolades. You know, you opened it with Inc. 5000 four times in a row. Um, you know, we're HubSpot agency of the year. It's like, it's it can't be about chasing that stuff because that stuff happens after you're good. It doesn't happen on the upward slope. Ground Up, episode 10. In 2009, Tiffany Souter's agency, Element 3, was essentially out of business. Their annual revenue was $412,000, and they had lost $250,000 as a business that year. Oh, and while this was happening, Souter and her husband were expecting and welcoming their first child. It was a tough year. Souter even questioned whether she had what it took to turn it around. Then her father gave her a piece of advice that helped change her perspective. It can be the end if you choose for it to be, or you can choose for it not to be. Fast forward to 2017, and Element 3 has been named to the Inc. 5000 for four straight years. In 2012, they were HubSpot's Agency of the Year. This isn't just a story about starting up, but also one about perseverance. Really, it's about finishing what you started. So, Tiffany, I, I would say the first thing I wanted to say was, because I, I it's it's been quite a while since we've been able to catch up. I've been out of the, uh, we were just talking about this before, we, I've been out of the partner ecosystem for a couple of years now. Uh, is this four years in a row, 2017? Uh, congrats is in order on making the Inc. 5000 list? Yeah, I know. It's crazy. We sort of like pinch ourselves too, but yeah, it's been four years. Wow, that's it's amazing for an agency. And uh, so this is so I'm look. I actually have the Element Three page up from the Inc. Five Thousand list, and just looking at like the growth numbers, like three year growth at 122 percent. Um, what? Uh, so th- these are 2016 figures. Where where are you guys at currently, uh, or or what would what can you share about in terms of like headcount and and revenue? Uh, where is Element Three today? Yeah, so we're we're just under 10 million from a revenue perspective. Um, for whatever reason, there's kind of these major markers in my head. If we could get to a million dollars in revenue, I felt like there would be a new dawn. Um, and I and that was kind of our first sprint. Um, and took us about six years to hit that number, and then it's taken us about that same number of years, about six, to hit the 10 million dollar mark. So it's kind of interesting how, um, you know, the the slope of the line has certainly increased, but. Uh, and you learn different things in those different chasms. But as we've crossed that one to 10 million, um, we've kind of stabilized and grown. And we're, I think we'll end 2017 around 70 or 72 employees. Wow. So yeah, in a services business, the headcount game is, um, you know, kind of a proxy for revenue too. If 10, 10 years ago, when you thought of what it would be like to manage, you know, to, to, to oversee that many people and to be at that level of revenue, what what would you have thought that would look like? And does it mirror that expectation? Yeah, you know, there's, um, so no, I guess in a word, no, it does not mirror what my expectation was at all. And um, I think that the, the like ownership and sole responsibility that you feel as, you know, you're just getting started in those first few years, there's so much pressure on you as an individual to perform um, that you think that's what it's always going to feel like. 
Um, and it starts the lesson as you get comfortable and confident and can attract, you know, people who know things that you don't and learn to leverage other people's talents and strengths into the, you know, into the bigger picture. Um, you know, we've got, you know, payroll between five and $700,000 a month. And I, I thought that would crush me. You know, my 27 year old self would have died. Um, <laughs> but, but you, you start to understand that if you work the game plan, that, that it will work. Um, and you know, you start, it's, I guess it's all about, you know, strategy, tactics, behavior, but when we show up day in and day out, I can let go of the pr- pressure to perform like in the big context of things, because I know we're performing in the day. Um, so, you know, I think that that is the piece of the success model that I certainly didn't understand in the early days. And I'm thankful that we've kind of matured, um, so that I don't have to feel, you know, the stress and sole responsibility that I felt when we were just getting started. And just to level set too, when was element three founded and, and how did, how did that all happen? Like, how did you come to, uh, get involved? Yeah. So, um, so I'm a finance business nerd kind of girl. Um, and, uh, so, you know, started out my career at a great big pharmaceutical company as a financial analyst and grew up in a really nerdy business house. So, um, you know, my dad didn't necessarily teach us how to like dribble a basketball so much as like read a P and L. <laughs> and, um, I, you know, I joke, it didn't make us like exceptionally cool as kids, but, um, tended to translate into sort of this grown up world that we live in much longer than we'd live in high school. Um, so in, anyway, and through that, I think growing, growing up in an environment where there was a heavy entrepreneurial spirit, um, there was a lot of risk taking that I saw modeled at a really young age. My dad invested in different businesses and took some chances and some things worked and some things didn't. Um, and also growing up in a home where, uh, really the effort was rewarded more than the outcome because what you start to learn about business as well is that if you just show up every day and perform that the right things will start to come together. Um, you don't have to know the right answer the first time every time. Um, so anyway, how I got into it is I kind of got this wild brained idea and I approached my dad and asked him if he would buy this really small design consultancy that was um, in Indianapolis. I think they had like six employees and just a couple hundred thousand dollars in revenue. And for the most part, it wasn't really worth anything on paper in the traditional sense of like balance sheet, you know, um, value. But I just, for some reason felt this magnetic attraction that I was supposed to jump in and figure this business out. And, um, I, I just, I feel like somehow I was destined and supposed to be here at this point in time. And it has, kind of a crude and rudimentary beginning and that we bought a small business that didn't have a ton of momentum to it. And I felt like if I could apply the things I learned in finance, which was you take historical data and you make a story and a narrative for yourself so that you can understand what happened in the past. And then you look out into the future and say, well, what assumptions am I going to make about what's going to happen? And how do I extrapolate what I know about the past into the future and make a budget? That's what you do in finance. And then every single month when, you know, you actually produce the thing or make it your actuals from a financial, they come in and you compare what you thought was going to happen to what actually happened. And in finance, that's called variance. And then when you look at the variance and you understand like, oh, this is what happened 
it was different than I thought. Now I have new information to make a better decision going into the future. Like that same thinking pattern that I learned at, you know, 22, 23, 24 coming out of college um, in a big corporate finance environment was the same thinking patterns that really need to apply to marketing. Um, and I was seeing marketing strategy, you know, sort of very sloppily be done by, you know, more art driven people and not pure business strategists, at least in the market that I'm in here in Indianapolis. And so that was really distinctive to people as I started to talk about that thinking construct being applied to marketing. And, and, and again, keep in mind, this was almost 15 years ago now. So it wasn't as quantitative and data driven as what we're able to be as marketers today, John, right? Like you, I'm sure there are very few random cho- decisions that you make as you're putting together your strategy for data box. But then being able to dig into the business and to dig into, you know, pretty unsophisticated CRMs, even at the point in time to be able to cobble together what the, what that number story might be telling us was, was getting kind of people to think about it differently. So that's kind of how I got started. And, um, you know, it's like this mashup of left brain and right brain happening inside of the art and storytelling and emotional engagement that we have to have because attention cannot be stolen anymore. It has to be very authentically earned as we think about building brands and building trust with people who follow and trust us. Um, so there's this art to it that can never be ignored. And I love that. And yet there's also this like deeply principled data that we have to respect and not ignore so that we can be prudent with the financial assets that we're given as marketers. And so that like, I think what will be everlasting tension is what is like the most magnetic part of this game that we're playing. So Tiffany, you gave a great talk over the summer. I saw the video uh, at impact live, which is put on by an agency uh, out of Connecticut. And in it, you shared a lot. I mean, you, you were super open about the challenges in growing, growing a business, growing an agency, and the things that you went through both personally and professionally. And you kind of started around this time in 2009, where there was like a, a, a lot going on in your life, personally, professionally. Um, you had you had a child that year. Uh, you, the business uh, had lost a lot of money that year. Can you talk about that for a second? Just like, what was that period like and how did you approach working through that? Yeah. Um, those are years that you, um, like you never want to give back, but you're also fine. Never like living them again. Um, and I, I think that it's 2009, 2010 that my husband and I really learned what we were made of. Um, just as far as like grit and, uh, cause there's so many days that your whole mind is just telling you to like quit. Um, so yeah, just kind of a quick, we'd been in business about four years. Um, and we, the first three years we experienced a fair amount of success and then had, you know, just signed, um, a new lease, which is a big fixed cost for a service business like ours. And because we weren't worth much as a business, my dad signed a personal guarantee for $750,000, which in my, you know, 27 year old mind was the same as like the national deficit, you know, it was a huge, 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 huge number. And I felt a lot of responsibility that he took that chance on me and was willing to do that. And, um, my husband left his, you know, pretty secure job at a CPA firm and decided to go raise money from friends and family and start a hedge fund and put all that into the market. Um, and then, yeah, in January, 2009, we also had our first child. So 
it was really a convergence of, um, you know, every area where I would say that we thought we had stability, you know, we're both college educated, we both come from, um, you know, really stable financial environments as, you know, kids, and um, kind of thought that we had life by the horns. And we, we both really got, I would say, very humbled and really punched in the face. And looking back, um, there were there were a lot of tears that year, a lot of um, questioning whether or not I had what it take, you know, ha- I had what it took to really turn this around. Um, and I think it's, you know, the belief of people that like your parents and like mentors and friends and family that tell you that like it can be the end if you choose it to be the end, but it doesn't have to be. And um, my dad reminded me of that over and over that year of like, you can quit. It can be the end. If you want it to be the end, then you can choose for it to be, or you can choose for it not to be. And you can keep showing up and you can keep resolving and you can keep kind of pushing that finish line out. And, um, you know, eventually it gets easier, but you don't necessarily recognize it's getting easier um, because I was, I really stayed in survival mode for a really long time. Um, and because the business looking, was it yeah. 2009 that you guys, uh, I think you had shared in your talk, you guys had lost the business lost 250,000 and, and what was revenue? Yeah. yeah. I think our revenue was like 412,000 that year and we lost $250,000. Yeah. So we were out of business right? You know, for all intents and purposes. <laughs> uh, we really were. And I knew that, you know, I know accounting enough to know that this is essentially insolvent. So what do you do? And yeah, going into 2009 as a service business, Nobody was signing contracts because, you know, Bear Stearns, Lehman Brothers, all that was, you know, the mortgage crisis was happening around us. But yet I knew my asset was my people. That was my value prop to my existing customers. So it was this chicken of the egg of, I know I don't have revenue right now to keep my people, you know, to pay them. But if I let them go, I no longer have a value prop to the people who may rehire me. So, um, you know, I hung on too long. I didn't have the maturity to kind of protect my business first. Um, and, uh, I didn't know where to look, you know, I've also seen and learned really astute leaders, um, know how to navigate every economic climate and that knowing how to be a sustainable business is knowing how to also navigate what I saw as something I had no control over, which is the economy is that it's my job to know how to navigate that, either prepare for it from a, you know, cash financial perspective or some industry does well in every economy and knowing how to have the agility to be able to go in and out of different you know, industries or markets. So um, that was a big learning point for me, too, because it took me a long time to take ownership of the fact that that was my failure to own. It was easier to blame the economy. How did you guys climb out of that hole? Like, like you said, you were essentially out of business. So this was 2000. How did you climb out of that? Yeah. So, um, you know that like people say that you're fight or flight, like I'm straight up street fighter when it comes to that, which doesn't really necessarily fit my physical persona. Um, but I just like, I, I just remember one time being like, I'm just pissed. Like I'm just pissed. I've got nothing to lose. This thing's already out of business. And so I did two things. One was, um, I, I, I basically was like, well, if I knew how to sell, I would be selling. Um, I'm not holding out on myself, so I must not know how to do this. So I hired for a thousand dollars a month, which was like paying somebody $25,000 a month today. You know, it was like every penny that I had, um, a thousand dollars a month 
to train me. We use the Sandler selling model to basically learn how to sell. And I said, I can't sell anything less than a hundred thousand dollars. So we'd, I don't even, we probably had one client that was a hundred thousand dollars. So that was like huge. But I was like, I'm not going to be able to dig out of this hole fast enough if I'm selling, you know, $8,000 projects 80 times. I just don't, I'm not going to have the time to get the rotations in. So I hired a guy, his name is Brian Kavicki. And I said, tell me everything, you know, like I'm going to turn into a robot, whatever you tell me to do, I'm going to go do it. Because if I had a better idea, it would be working and it's not. So, um, and I think there's also a place where when you're willing to let down, like every last defense of your own ideas, that that's when you're really open to like learning and changing. Um, and you know, he, he taught me not to sell out. I think in those times in particular, it's really easy to sell out to any work that comes your way, but you are defining what your business looks like for the next decade when you're bringing on, you know, work and clients and the environment that you create for your people. So, um, that was a really core discipline that I learned uh, during that time. Yeah, You had a good, you had a good uh, soundbite on that, which was you felt if you could learn early on that, if you can control your revenue, you can control your business. So was this, this was part of that mantra. So, so hiring somebody to, to essentially teach you how to do that, right? Sell, control your revenue, control the business. A hundred percent. I mean, in my business, if you look at people as fixed cost, I'm 95% fixed. So if I can control the consistency and reliability of my revenue, I have a whole different kind of game I can play, different level of confidence in the way that I can manage my business. The other thing that is sort of one of the true things about my business, being in the service business, is that the only asset I really have, and I'll put only in quotes, but really is my people. So I have my culture to offer the talent that I'm beholden to and that I need to serve and create an awesome environment. And I need to control revenue so that they have a stable place to be able to work and depend on a job. Those are the only two jobs I really have as a president of an agency. And if you get a bunch of crappy work to try to um, meet your demand and need on the revenue side, you then kill your culture and nobody good wants to work for you because it's a sweatshop. Um, and so it, it became about not just getting any dollar but the right dollar that was congruent to the culture that I wanted to create. So at the end of the day, I was proud of the company I'd made. Um, and I, I think that period of time also taught me the importance of the relationship between those two pieces in my business and that sort of precious balance that I have to strike as I'm both wanting to make sure that we hit our financial objectives as a company, but also protecting the culture and the environment that I can, that I have to create for people who to want to work here. Cause it's a fight for talent. Do you remember when the HubSpot ecosystem and, and the partner community, when not all of that came into play? Because 2012 was when I first heard of element three, you guys were HubSpot's agency partner of the year. Yeah. Um, and then I feel like everybody in that ecosystem learned who you guys were and started paying attention, reading the blog and, and all that yeah. kind of stuff. So when did the relationship with HubSpot begin? Yeah. So it was October, 2010. And I didn't know, but I must've been, you know, HubSpot, such a HubSpotty thing to do. I must've been, you know, downloading everything under the moon, you know, that they had published, but I didn't know it was written by HubSpot. I was just kind of trying to understand marketing like technology and how all that was playing and disrupting my business. Um, and they were using a lot of language around this idea of closed loop reporting. And 
my financial background knew that that was the holy grail. If I can go in front of any like respectable business owner and show them the economic model of you spend this much with me, I give you that much plus some, they're going to do that all day long. And I have, I knew I could navigate that with a ton of confidence. So HubSpot was really kind of promoting that. And I was reading a bunch of stuff, but I, I didn't, I don't think I knew it was HubSpot or not necessarily even knew the name HubSpot. And then um, Danny Hertzberg, who will ever be, you know, her name will forever be in the history books of element three as well. She called me to kind of give me a software demo and like talk me. And then I was like, I don't really care how it works. Does it work? And she's like, yeah, I was like, no, like really the things that you're telling me, does it do that stuff? And she's like, yeah, it really does. And I was like, okay, then, then let's do it. And she's like, well, you know, let me show you. I was like, I don't care how it works. I'm assuming it works because if it doesn't, then you have bigger problems on your hands, like way bigger than Tiffany Souter. So like, let's do it. So, and at the time HubSpot was giving agencies the advice to like, you know, kind of warm up, like get, you know, use it on yourself. And I was like, Oh crap. Like if we say we're doing it for ourselves, we'll never get to it. Like there's no way. So I was like, no, I like, I'm going to just start selling it. Um, and she's like, well, because I had been learning how to sell. And I knew, I knew I could create, I, I understood like just from a common sense perspective, why this was important for businesses to try to get to a place where they had a single integrated platform. They had one single source of data that the complexities of having to move data around started to get so much easier. So that was, you know, again, early days of HubSpot, that was one of the key value props. Um, so, so we yeah. just sold the crap out of it. Yeah. And then fast yeah. forward. So 2010, you said that was when you, that was end of 10. So October, 2010. Yeah. Okay. So not even really two years later, uh, you guys were named agency partner. Of the year. What was that to yeah. come, to come from, and again, you guys have come miles and in, in galaxy since then, since 2012, but to come from where you guys were in 2009 to, uh, to, to learning how to control revenue, to developing this relationship with HubSpot and then being recognized in by, by HubSpot, which obviously has a massive uh, influence as agency partner of the year. What was that like? Well, so like total true story here. I didn't really know HubSpot was a big deal. I mean, we're in Indianapolis. They're in Boston. They weren't that that big of a deal at that point in time. I was just pumped. I could figure out how to sell something. Um, and uh, I think it was Danny at the time. She was like, hey, you guys should come out to our user conference. I didn't tell her this, but I was like, we can't really afford it. Like, it's going to be three, $4,000, which felt super extravagant. Right. You know, Boston is a pretty expensive city to go to. And I was like, I just don't really know. And it was like two weeks before. And I didn't know there were any awards. I didn't really know there was an agency like ecosystem necessarily. I'd never heard the name Brian Halligan before. Like I just didn't really get it. Um, and, uh, she's like, I just think you should come. I think it would be neat. I think I've got some people I like promise I'll be able to create value for you. And she had like delivered, you know, a, a bunch of stuff for me just as we'd worked together over the previous year and a half. And I was like, I'll see like if we can get out there. So like two weeks before we got tickets in a hotel room and did she know something? Like, Sorry to interrupt. Did she know something yeah, that you didn't at that time? She knew that we had won that award, but she didn't tell me. And I didn't even <laughs> know there was really an award ceremony. Like I just had no idea. I just wasn't, right. I just didn't know. So yeah, we'll go through the award ceremony and I'm like, Oh, this is neat. You know, this is, and then the last award was the agency of the year award. And I was like, Oh, I wonder who it's going to be like, this is neat. And then it was no, us. No and inclination I was like, in your head. that it oh, could No, be. no idea. I had no idea. <laughs> no, no idea at all. 
but I told, and Brian Halligan afterwards came up to me, who's the CEO of HubSpot, for those who don't know. And he's like, how is it that you are my agency of the year and I have no idea who you are? And I was like, I don't know who you are either. Like, I'm super sorry. Um, but the lesson for me in that, and I tell this to people because now we have all of these accolades. You know, you opened it with Inc. 5000 four times in a row. Um, you know, we're HubSpot agency of the year. It's like, it's, it can't be about chasing that stuff because that stuff happens after you're good. It doesn't happen on the upward slope. Does that make sense? Like right. we yeah. had already you have to be sold good first. You've said that. 25 instances of HubSpot or whatever. Like you have to be good first. And I'm for people who know the disc profile, I'm a high eye. I love attention. I love feeling special. Like, you know, it sounds narcissistic, but I just know those things give me energy. And so in the early days, I was, I would go through our local, you know, business journal or look at these like, you know, ink 30 under 30. And I'd be like, oh, if I could just be those people, that would be amazing. And then kind of when I was like, you know, screw it. I don't really care. I'm going to just figure out how to make money in my business. All that stuff started happening as a natural extension of growing a business. And I think in this like shark tank, like celebrity, you know, entrepreneur environment we live in. We like skip the fundamentals hardcore. And I think that's a huge injustice. And, you know, I appreciate that other people recognize that we're good and that's what those badges do for us. But in some ways, I wish there was a way to get attention for being a sound, fiscally, financial, responsible business person who has grown a great culture without all that stuff. But there's just not. So, right. And you kind of, you've talked about this before. You kind of fell into, that right for a while where you uh and and this was a part that was probably for me one of the most raw moments of of your talk which was uh and we're jumping ahead here too but uh, a a couple years later as you described it um you know you had this personal breakthrough that you kind of realized every time you made an excuse of of uh whether it was to your family about being busy or you had a meeting or you know you will reschedule this to another day those were the people that you were sacrificing sort of. Yeah. And it was just like really powerful moment in your talk where you made it really personal. And, um, after like a couple of years of, of really pushing for those, uh, for, for agency growth and, and collecting accolades and being recognized that kind of took a toll on your personal life. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. so what, yeah, what, I guess, what was that? What was that like? Well, I think that, um, I think the mistake I made, and I guess I won't project this to other people, but you know, one of the things that my behavior was, was, was showing to the people around me was that I believed it was worth working for element three to save it harder than I was willing to expend and run towards making sure that my family was healthy. And yeah, what John's speaking to is, um, you know, I spoke in about in 2009 where it was such survival mode. And it's, it's important to feel this tremendous amount of responsibility because that's what keeps you going, you know, kind of through the fire, but I never like let up and I never like let myself exhale and trust and believe what was like actually happening in the business. And so I stayed in this like manic mode where, yeah, it was like, more meetings. I, I didn't turn anybody down. I, I was going to be on all the boards people asked me to be on. I was going to meet at 7 p.m. if that's when you needed me. I was going to grind away at email till one in the morning. I was going to, you know, get up at 4:35 in the morning and make sure that I'd sort of crossed every T and dot every I. And I was like 
completely obsessed with the agency, with growing it, with everything about it to a place where it was starting to really not allow space for anybody else living life with me to be able to come, come alongside. And, um, my husband was sort of the key recipient of a lot of that. And, you know, rightfully he was kind of waving his arm saying, I don't know how I fit into the equation anymore. And, um, it really, you know, we ran into a wall with our relationship and, um, really had to like reconcile and work through. And I had to understand that the things and behaviors and patterns of thinking that were contributing to that environment around me was different than I would have said was happening. But when I stepped back and interrogate what was actually happening, it clearly showed where my priorities were. And, um, yeah, I, I also shared, you know, I had to, I was like, but if I let go, what will happen? Like what, what will happen? And that's when I started to realize that like I had to create space for these really amazing leaders and these amazing people who want to be part of like painting the journey with me. I had to create space for them to be able to step up. And I had to trust that even if they didn't, and this whole thing went away. And I remember processing this very intentionally. Like there were two visions in my mind. One was I was like kind of forcing a dream into my head and saying, okay, let's say I continue to remain manic about element three. And there's like this huge crowd behind me. I I'm a runner and do a lot of like, not like marathon runner, but half marathon runner. Um, and there's this huge crowd of people behind me, like cheering. And it's like really loud as far as like, ah, but not specific in any message, but I'm crossing the finish line, like marathon finish line kind of picture all by myself, but all there, all these people, there's like a loud noise behind me. So I know they see me. And then the other picture was me crossing the same finish line with nobody around watching, but I was like holding my husband's hand and the hands of my daughters. And they were speaking very art, like clearly articulated words to me that were like very personal. And it was like this juxtaposition of if I can only have one of those. Let's say it's not possible for my life goals and element three to be able to coexist in the same picture. Which one do I pick? And I like wrestled with it because so much of my life and my tears and my blood and sweat had been getting element three to a place where it was visible and had some momentum. And it was like, but I am I willing to completely release it potentially to be nothing if I turn my attention to the other picture of being me and my husband and my three kids. And that was sort of the moment where I was like, okay, this is what I pick. I completely pick this picture of this family. And if that means that my choices and letting go some of the things that I'm holding so tightly onto means that element three goes away, I'm completely resolved to that being an acceptable outcome. Um, and so that didn't mean that I then like went to work the next day and worked as hard as I could to make element three fail. But that means that I put very intentional parameters in place. Like when I told my husband that when I would be home, I would set the alarm on my phone when I needed to leave. And whatever conversation I was in, I would say, I've made a commitment. I need to leave. Can we finish this tomorrow? And it didn't matter who it was, how much money they were worth, anything. 
I needed to sort of prove that I could keep those small commitments to my family. And, you know, as, as time has gone, we've, you know, you renegotiate those in different ways, but I had to re-earn trust at home too. And I had to show my family that I was really committed to them and willing to sacrifice potential quote unquote opportunities at element three to be able to be home with them. And yeah, as I reflected, you were kind of mentioning this, what I started to look at, and I'm kind of this like little quippy kind of person. That's how I hang on to information. What I started to realize is that the the person or people that are getting your excuses are the people that you are not serving. Those are the people that you're sacrificing. So, you know, I would go through and say, no one at element three is saying like, oh man, I'm so sorry. I was late for that meeting. I had to help my daughters get out the door. Like I had to make a batch of muffins this morning so that my daughter had her stuff for school. Nobody was hearing that stuff. My family was hearing, I'm so sorry. I was late. A call went late. Like I'm so sorry I have to leave early, but somebody has to meet for breakfast. I'm so sorry, but a client needs me to be in Atlanta, whatever it is. They were the ones getting all my excuses and all my I'm sorry's. And um, I realized that my my behavior was completely reversed from what I wanted it to be. And it's easier to say that than it is to actually say, like, I'm going to put down the phone. I'm going to leave my computer. I'm going to not do this and accept the outcome that happens as a result. And you know, it was a great big lie. Like element three has continued to grow 20, 30% year over year, even after I let go of all of that. And, um, I, I feel like that's a huge blessing. It didn't have to be that. And it could have all gone away. And I really would have been okay with that. It's not what I was wanting to have happen, but I needed to be willing, at least in my heart to be able to sacrifice all of it. That's a powerful story that even after that moment, you guys have, like we let off with Inc. 5000 four years in a row, uh, the realization that you've put the right people in place has, has got to be, uh, and, and get the recognition in, in your community as well. Uh, you, you mentioned earlier how you used to, you know, kind of look through the Indianapolis Business Journal. Um, and you said that those kind of people wouldn't give you the time of day, uh, mm-hmm. 2009, 2010. And now all of a sudden, right? Uh, you're getting, you know, invitations and, and, and obviously a lot more attention now that you guys are over 70 people, um, mm-hmm. you know, just under 10 million. Uh, but the perspective that you now have, uh, from everything that you've been through, um, sounds like you handle, handle that a lot differently. And, and, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's admirable because I think what you said, setting those parameters is super hard. That's, that's really hard to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I don't think it's unique to being a business owner. I mean, I think, I hope anybody in any role knows that there's this, you know, there's this pull to performance and the world's sort of perspective of what that looks like. And yeah, it can be intoxicating. Especially when you're getting recognized for it, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's certainly addicting. Uh, and through all this, obviously the team started to grow and you've talked about this realization that you came to wherein the people who started the journey with you. So I think Mm -hmm. you mentioned like, you know, having, having desks that were, that were, you know, card tables and things like that. So like those early days of, of any company or startup, um, uh, where, where, you know, maybe you're eating pizza out of the boxes and, and stuff like that those people that started the journey with you, you had this realization that maybe they weren't necessarily, or all of them weren't necessarily the ones that were going to finish it with you. Yeah. Um, and, and then you, uh, can you talk about coming to terms with that and, and, and your sort of maturity as a leader and, and having had to go through that? Yeah, that's really hard. It's even hard to talk about, you know, because you want, 
like the human part of you wants to really reward the people who took a shot on before, you know, a shot on you before anybody else really would. And so you want the storybook to end that like, you know, everybody gets to share in, you know, the result equally. And that's kind of a a little bit of a fairy tale, but you want it to be true so badly. Um, And that can be a little bit mis, I think, directing sometimes. So, you know, what I learned and, you know, in almost 15 years of employing people and, you know, having to go through tough things like deciding to move on from talent and helping people kind of find their right spot is that as trite as it may sound is that when it's not right for you as a business, it's also not right for that person as a human being. And I've been blessed with having a really strong like HR and culture partner and like the last seven, eight years of growing element three, um, Karen Saketa. And she's about, uh, she's a little older than me. And so she has been able to, I think, speak a lot of maturity into my leadership style and into our organization that without her, I wouldn't have. And, you know, really transparency is one of our core values. It's, it's also just sort of part of who I am as a person. And so being able to speak through the whole employment journey, when you feel like someone's not like elevating or escalating to a place where the company needs us now, so that at a minimum, it's never, ever a surprise. And that you start thinking about like, these are the talents that I see in you. These are the things that made you magnetic when we were a startup. And now that we have process, it like, you know, stomps the life out of your spirit. And as a company evolves, some people are like startup junkies and they love the like rush of the hustle and the chaos. And there is a real like awesome spirit that needs to be present at that stage in the business. And then when you're in scale up mode, you need people who, you know, like process and accountability and, you know, clear rules to things. Well, those people suck in the startup space. So, and just helping them understand this doesn't mean that you're no longer valuable as a human. This no longer means that like, we don't totally connect on an intellectual level. And I'm so thankful for where you've gotten us. Like, look at how this story could not have been written without you here, but how do we help you find another story so that your talents can be deployed? Um, in a way that makes you light up like it did when you were starting here. And, and so, you know, just seeing over time that play out over and over again, that when it's not right for me as a business, it's usually not right for them either. And they might not see that on the day that you kind of make your decision as a business, but given time, I find almost always they end up landing a place where they have, you know, can use their creative energies and talents in ways that we weren't able to deploy them at that stage in our company. So obviously a lot has changed since 2009 and 2010 and 2011. Those years that you had mentioned was, was, was very fight or flight, right? You were uh, learning how to sell. Um, you used the word, you know, becoming a robot just to, to learn and, and, and apply what you've learned. So obviously a lot has happened since then. Element 3 has seen a lot of success. Uh, again, referencing the Inc. 5000, four years running, just under 10 million. Headcount is is over 70, which is amazing for an agency. So, how is your, how is sort of your day to day and role within the company evolved since the days of you selling and, and being very client facing? Um, how has that all changed for you? Yeah, I'm I'm less I'm far less involved in the day to day work and delivery. I think that's a big trap um, in the service business in particular. 
A, it gives you a lot of professional feedback to be able to do work still and to let that go is kind of a big decision. Um, but I'm much more a facilitator of the vision. Um, I've got a leadership team of there's six of us. And so I'm making sure that the individual pieces and components that they're working on are really, you know, all moving towards the future state and the vision that I can see is where I've spent a huge piece of my time. I'm also just really engaging with the people who choose to work here. Um, you know, they have a lot of choices about where they could go. And I, I had this realization a few years ago that it's humbling to see that the, um, the like journey and lessons that element three has exposed to me as a person, I feel really refined and different and more confident and, in the contribution I can make to the world because there's been this like, you know, process of refining who I am. So I started to, I realized like, well, maybe this is my gift to give to everyone who works here that instead of using people to build a company, I can use a company to build people. Like what if it's the process of, you know, learning and making investment and executing projects and setting goals and figuring out if you can achieve them or not is actually the thing that we're doing here. It has little to do with growing a company. And if I grow the people well, I will have a company as a result. And um, so I spend a lot of time making sure that we're, you know, authentically delivering our culture on, you know, our employment promise to each of them that are here. And, um, and also just kind of future casting. You've been in this business for a long time too, John. And, you know, marketing shifts quickly. And so making sure that we are not only able to execute at a high level as marketing exists today, but also, you know, whenever there's another big pivot that we're already there and we're helping our clients navigate that too. So these days too, like who, who, who would be like your ideal client for element three? Because you, you guys are also super selective these days, uh, which is, which is, I think a place obviously every agency wants to get to instead of feeling like they have to take deals. But, um, you guys are really selective. Who, who is like your niche? Who's your ideal client these days? Yeah. So the three, um, and you'll start to see this more and more in our marketing over the next year, but the three primary industries that we're playing in right now, one is, um, what we call outdoor lifestyle. So we have a lot in like the high end boating, RV travel trailer, um, adventure brands. Um, so one, uh, one segment, like we don't have a, um, a cycling client right now and, and we should like every, every RV owner like has bikes they throw on the back. So other other brands that our core active outdoor lifestyle consumer buys, we know that buyer really well. Um, we know where they're at from a social media perspective. We know how they respond, you know, to different things. And um, we really want to continue to lean into that. The other is um, like B2B tech and SaaS. Uh, we have a concentration of clients and work there. And then the third is what we're calling like specialty health and wellness. So that's like, Things like mobility or um, orthopedics, it's not necessarily healthcare delivery like a hospital or clinic setting. Um, but, you know, as there's a, you know aging population that wants to do that very gracefully, um, we're also getting a real concentration of experience there. So that's kind of the three spaces that we're playing in right now. That's really the, the outdoor lifestyle one is super interesting. And like, yeah, what's like, really what's the like, what would you say is like the minimum you're, you're bringing clients in at these days? So 250,000 in agency fees is usually our, like, is our minimum. 
you know, we may start with a client that has a project that's smaller than that because we understand it's a dating relationship too. But if they're not sophisticated enough to spend that fairly readily, they're probably not ready for us. And we tell people we're not often people's first agency. Like it's just too much. Um, so yeah, some people grow into us, um, especially locally here, but that's kind of our, that I would say that's our baseline. Sure. That, that makes a lot of sense. And, uh, you obviously you guys are HubSpot resellers. So what, um, mm-hmm. how, what percentage would you say of your clients are, are HubSpot, uh, customers as well? What well, does that look like? probably about um, somewhere between a third, probably not quite half right now as we're going up market. Um, what we're finding is that these marketing technology decisions, you know, have already been made and the switching costs is pretty huge. So whether or not they're on, you know, what we might say their ideal marketing stack might be, you know, in the early days we were like, if you're not on HubSpot, I cannot afford to pretend like we know how to use something else. Like we don't, if you're not on HubSpot, you're not a client of ours, but you know, you start seeing, you know, Salesforce and their marketing stack is you know very prevalent in bigger companies. Um, they give away their marketing stack in a lot of places. So We've, we've become versed in a much wider array um, of marketing stacks because we've had to. And actually, last 2017, it's still this year, but we actually um, invested in more of a full stack development team. We're not just front end because the integrations and being able to, you know, actually deliver closed loop reporting, even at big companies, because it never hits the priority level for IT departments. We're actually getting in a lot more custom development um, so that we can connect data and make sure that we have uh, much stronger insights into what's happening. That's great. And I, I love the branding. I know it's a few years now since uh, you guys had like uh, this this big rebrand. But like, as I said, starting off, it's been a while since we've caught up. But I, I yeah. love the Element 3 branding. Uh, it's 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 far and away probably my favorite out of out of all all of them in the uh, agency ecosystem it's just it's it feels uh i mean it feels like you guys probably put as much time into that as you do your client work which says a lot um, yeah i'm glad to hear that we do we spend a ton on our own we do yeah uh, we yeah take it very and, seriously and there's there's a handful of agencies that do and it's it's tough i think for agencies to to put that kind of care into the non-billable stuff, but mm-hmm. it shows. And I think it, it definitely elevates those agencies, but this has been a well, lot of fun. Yeah. If there's agencies listening that want to know how we did that, we did not get it actually done until we had a team 100% fully dedicated to our internal stuff. Right. Whenever they straddle the client work always wins. So yeah, we've got four full-time people and it is a significant investment, but I think in the long term we'll look at back and think it was smart. So for we'll sure, see. and it definitely shows. Yeah, <laughs> Tiffany, this was this was so much fun. I I love how open you are in sharing your story. Thanks for uh, everything from the financial side to the personal side. It, it's thank you for being so open. It, it's a great story. I had a lot of fun. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Don, for having me. I appreciate it. Thanks so much for listening. If you found this episode valuable, check out our other episodes or subscribe to get new ones. If you want to support the show, we'd love for you to leave a review or share it with someone. And if you want a tool to help you track and improve your business performance, try Databox free at databox.com.